Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo, and I'm joined, as always, by co-host Joe Wolfond. What up, Cash? Seven more years of labor peace, baby. I was going to say, if if we want to keep doing Pound the Rock for that long, we're guaranteed that there will not be a lockout until at least 2029, because late Friday night, or I guess technically early Saturday Saturday morning, the league and the Players Association after extending the opt-out deadline a few times, reached an agreement on a new CBA. Now, it hasn't been voted on yet, so it hasn't technically been ratified, but I'd be very surprised in a very rare instance if a agreed-to deal isn't ratified by both sides. So for the most part, we can assume safely that there will be NBA labor peace until at least 2029. We're going to spend the majority of today's show picking our all-defensive teams, but until then, we did want to hit on a little bit about the new CBA. I mean, I guess there's nothing necessarily seismic in terms of like, you know, major, major changes. For example, it's still a 50-50 split of basketball-related income, although there are things like, for example, now licensing revenue is going to be included in that BRI, which is big, and there are things like that, and obviously there are things we can get into with respect to you know, um, maybe fewer options that the highest spending teams will have and some other things. But for the most part, the the general function of the CBA will remain the same. But uh, before we get to our all defensive teams, we figured we'd both talk about something we liked and something we don't like about the new CBA. So Wolfon, the mic is yours. You get to start. Are we starting with what you like or what you don't like? And what is it? Let's start with what I like. And I feel like this is maybe going to be an unpopular opinion, but I want to get out ahead of this one and say I am pro in-season tournament. I think it's going to be really fun and just add some spice to the regular season, which I kind of feel like the regular season could use, to be perfectly honest. And I, I know it's sort of going backwards in terms of what you and I and a lot of other people feel is actually needed, which is to cut games from the schedule. Yeah, But given that that was just not going to happen because there's no real benefit in it for like I think there's benefit in it for everybody if you want to kind of look at things holistically like yeah. benefit in it for the fans and um you know ultimately in terms of player health and and just making the product better overall I do think that would be a net benefit but in terms of revenues when it comes to broadcast partners and the money that would ultimately be you know taken out of players and owners pockets it just, it seems like that's going to be really difficult to ultimately get to where where you're lopping games off of the regular season schedule. So I think in terms of just an alternative and a way to, to make the regular season a little bit more interesting, I actually think this is going to be pretty fun. And yes, there are going to be two teams who wind up playing 83 regular season games instead of 82, which again, is not the direction things should be moving in. I think that this is going to be actually pretty enjoyable. And and the fact that they're going to bake those round robin games into the regular season schedule. Um, and then I'm still you know, trying ha- to compute how it's only the two finalists who are going to end up playing the extra game. If the way I read it on three different reports is that yes, the round robin section will be baked into the regular season schedule. I think in November, December, the way I envision is maybe it'll be like divisional games, whatever it is, but it'll be baked into the schedule. And then eight teams advance to a three-round 
single elimination tournament. I believe in it's pro- likely going to be in Vegas was the Woj report or the Shams report. I can't remember. But only the two finalists will end up playing 83 games. So eight teams are going to play a three-round tournament that is not baked into the schedule, but only the two teams who advance to the final will end up playing 83 games. That, to me, indicates, one, I'm uh, it's confusing the hell out of me, but two, it indicates that the NBA schedule from now on will have like a flex. Uh, like, are we only going to get the schedule from October to December from now on when it's first mm. released? And then, because you get what I'm saying, because or yeah, else, yeah. how would that work? Uh, I feel like kind that, of, that is kind it. of what I imagine. Like, there, it, yeah. maybe that will. And you remember, was it two years ago? The, like the 72 game season where initially yeah. we just got the first half, um, and then and then they rolled out the second half later. Maybe it'll be like that, and I that feel like it'll have okay to be. in the end. Um, so yeah, like I, I think I don't know if those games will be tacked on, uh, like say i don't know you have a a tournament game where the clippers are playing the warriors and those teams were already scheduled to play four times in the normal course of an nba schedule would then you know would they then play a fifth time or again would it be would it be flexed out of like the the remainder of the schedule i think the only way to actually do it would be in such a way as you have to roll out the second half schedule later on which I don't think it's the worst thing in the world. Like no, maybe it's fine. a headache for the schedule makers, but you Go and I don't necessarily have to worry about that. I'm not really like pro or against the in-season tournament. I'm open-minded enough to kind of wait and see and hope that I'm entertained. And my thing with it is just that I think it'll just be tough to get people to care about it. And I know the argument against that would be, well, you know, a lot of people thought that about the playing tournament and now look how invested people are. But the difference there is that the playing tournament is still connected to something that NBA fans are conditioned to care about the playoffs, extending your season. Now I, you know, I say that and perhaps the, we don't know, maybe the mid season tournament winner is going to get an automatic playoff berth or something. But I do think there would have to be something like that tied to it to truly make people care about it now whether the teams themselves and the players care about it with the money involved that's another story but i mean in terms of fan interest to have an nba fan truly care about this mid-season tournament that is starting in season 78 of the league i feel like there has to be something tied to the traditional things they care about for them to really have a vested interest like the way the play-in is you know tied to oh maybe your team will get a chance to make the playoffs the thing everyone cares about yeah i mean i don't i guess i just don't really care about that that much like there are the cash incentives right i think shams reported that everybody on the winning team is gonna make 500 grand which will not be a big deal to some players on the team but will be a big deal to others you know like a guy on a minimum contract is gonna care a lot about you know adding an extra 500 grand to his salary and maybe the other players on the team who you know are a little bit more financially secure will care about that as well you know for playing for for their lower salary teammates that actually have a lot more skin in the game i meant fan interest no no i understand the fans don't won't care about that to the same extent but like okay to your point before it's like otherwise it would just be an ordinary regular season game right and now it is a regular season game that counts towards the regular season standings and also counts toward something that again initially maybe people won't care about all that much because it's this new thing and there's no prestige attached to it there's no reason for them to 
feel any type of way about how their team performs in this in-season tournament. Ultimately, if the players decide that it matters, if they play super hard and show that they care about whether they win or lose, the fans will care too. That's how it works. You know, like it, and then that's, that's, I guess what it will come down to, like the success or failure of this thing will come down to how much the players and I guess coaching staffs decide they care about winning it. I do like the fact that it is tied to the regular season standings. Like the games are still considered part of the regular season. I think that is a key to keeping it from becoming hokey. Cause I think if it had been this completely separate thing, if they had tried to model it truly after the European or South American soccer style league cups and things like that. I just don't think they would have been able to pull that off. So I think the fact that it is actually baked into the regular season and the standings will help it seem, you know, less disruptive and less hokey. Would you want there to be some other incentive, like a guaranteed playoff berth or something like that? Or would, would that be pushing it too far in the other direction to you where it's adding outsized importance to something that you don't think should matter that much? playoffs would be strong i would like it to be like you get you're guaranteed at least a play-in spot now if a team is going to win this mid-season tournament i would assume most likely they will end up being a top 20 team in the league and maybe Mm. it doesn't end up mattering but you never know you could have the odd year where a a, a bad team just you know gets hot look at orlando in december that was it december when orlando caught that heater like that's an example i don't know maybe if you know, if the midseason tournament was going on, maybe that's an example of like, well, Orlando could have won something this year with that tournament. Maybe that could have guaranteed them a play-in spot and now everyone else has to get top nine. I'd be okay with that. Since the play-in is a relatively new thing anyway, I'd be completely fine with something like that where you are upping the stakes, you are making people care about it more, but you're not completely disrupting the flow of things where this team's guaranteed a playoff spot, but they're at least going to get a, a chance to play for a playoff spot because they won this new thing. Yeah, I wouldn't hate that. I, I yeah. just, I, I don't know. I think thinking about it, conceptualizing it in my own mind, I feel like I'm going to be interested in it one way or another. And I'm obviously very hopeful that there is going to be enough incentive for teams to care about it a lot as well. Because I think at this stage, there are not that many regular season games where we can watch them and like have big sweeping takeaways where both teams really like threw everything at the wall and were playing, you know, their entire lineups and, um, you know, doing something other, I guess, than like tinkering and experimenting, but maybe showing us something like, Hey, if these two teams happen to meet in the playoffs, then this is what it might look like. You know, because they really, really cared about winning this yeah. particular game. We just don't get that many regular season games like yeah. that anymore. And if this tournament could engender that sort of, uh, you know, those sort of stakes, I guess, then I think that would be a good thing. All right. I like the switch to positionless NBA, all NBA teams. Something I've been, I think I wrote about it, did a video about it, definitely ranted about it on the pod for a couple of years now in broader rants about how what I actually thought was needed was another all NBA team because in terms of historical context modern players are still at a disadvantage because a smaller percentage of players make the all NBA teams than ever before at any other point in league history but at least in with going to positionless you're ensuring that the 15 best players should get recognized and this is actually the way it was for the first nine years there were all nba teams it was positionless there was only two teams then but still 
it was positionless. Now, I get some might say, you know, we're doing away with this tradition that's you know gone on more than six decades now with the positions and picking them with positions is maybe more fun or more challenging. But I like the positionless style one, because like I said, if you're going to keep it to 15 players, the best 15 should get recognized. But I actually like the fact that if the teams are positionless, they will reflect the times and tell the story of different eras. So yeah, right now in the modern era, you might end up with more perimeter-oriented teams, but if it had been positionless in the 80s or early 90s, guess what? There would have been a lot of big men dominating those teams. I think it's cool that the all-NBA teams will reflect the times and the eras, and also to anyone you know thinking that, oh, it's yeah, you're, the centers are the most uh, disadvantaged because that third guaranteed spot just isn't going to be there for them anymore. I hear you, but again, it depends on the eras. And also, there's also the advantage of the fact that Joel Embiid and Nikola Jokic, who both should be first team the last few years, and I know you can still manufacture them first team by making them eligible at forward or whatever, but now, whether it's the, the two of them or whatever, they can both be on the first team. So I don't think centers are disadvantaged because they're not three of them are guaranteed to be in the top 15. Because guess what? Maybe four of them will be in the top 15 one year and they can all get in. Two of them can be on the first team. So I just think this is the way to go. It's a modernized way to look at the All-NBA teams. Like I said, my only complaint at this point is that there's not a fourth team. Because again, if you look at the percentage of players that make All-NBA over the course of NBA history, players now have the worst odds in terms of being able to qualify for an All-NBA team than ever before. But I like the fact they at least went this route. Yeah. Totally agree, and we've been talking about it for a while. I kind of knew this was where you were going to go with this, and uh, I am fully supportive of that. I do think it's interesting. We're going to talk about all defense later in this show. It's just the all-NBA teams, right? All defense is still going to remain positionally defined, and I kind of don't hate that. Like This is maybe a a bit of an old-school take for me, but... I think specifically when we're talking about defense, the responsibilities are so different. And it really is, in a lot of ways, like comparing apples and oranges. If you're talking about, you know, a a perimeter defender versus an interior defender. So I don't hate the idea of actually having those kinds of distinctions on the all defensive teams. I think I would prefer for it to be maybe like, like two perimeter spots and three interior spots or something like that, where it's a little bit looser and we're not splitting hairs between, well, is OG Ananobi a guard on my all defensive team or a forward and things like that, where you could just be like, no, he's a perimeter defender. And that's the category you put him in. But I don't hate having at least some level of distinction for all defense, just because I do think the responsibilities are, are so different. Okay, what do you dislike about the new CBA? Well, I mean, you're talking about all NBA teams and how that's a thing you like, but there's, you know, a, a corresponding downside in this agreement, which is that a player is going to be required to play at least 65 games to be eligible for any awards or any all NBA or all defensive teams. And I just think that is so idiotic. Like I hate it so much because at the end of the day, like I understand, yes, they want these players to be playing more regular season games and they want to find a way to curb load management. 
but I just don't think that this is the way to do it. And I think, I, I don't know, ultimately, what what is it really adding to the product to, to force this upon players and teams? Ultimately, you're going to let the, the voters decide, right? Or you should let the voters decide. Like if a player has played 63 games and the voters still believe that player to have been, you know, worthy of an all NBA spot or to have been the most valuable player or the defensive player of the year, then great. That player was obviously impactful enough in those games to have merited whatever consideration he has afforded. And to say you have to reach this totally arbitrary threshold in order to qualify just doesn't do anything for anybody. And like the, the prospect of a potentially injured or physically compromised player pushing through in order to get to that eligibility benchmark, I don't know, it feels dangerous to me. In a, in a way that just makes me super uncomfortable. Any rule that would disqualify Jaron Jackson Jr. from being even in the conversation for Defensive Player of the Year this year is dumb. Think about it like that. Because Jaron Jackson Jr. is not going to play 65 games this year. Now, I wouldn't vote him for Defensive Player of the Year this year, and the game's played does come into account. But to your point, that's part of the voting process. You take all that into account. 65 just seems too high first and foremost 65 is definitely not it seems too high a great player should be able to miss 18 friggin' games due to a legitimate injury and still qualify for all nba teams or awards if voters think his season and his performance deserves merit and jaron jackson jr this year in, in defensive player of the year talks is a perfect example like i'd probably have him as my runner-up but to say that bro that guy is no longer even going to be in the running because he might have missed one. Like, Jimmy Butler this year, is if he plays every game this week, I think he'll end up with 66 games played. Or maybe 65 on the dot. But the point is, think of how insanely good Jimmy Butler has been this year. Two on both sides. Insanely good. If Jimmy Butler had missed maybe one more game at some point, not because he was resting, even if it was, but whatever. Just got hurt, maybe got was sick, I don't know. If he had missed one more game or maybe two more games... This season that we all know whether he gets it or not is obviously warrants all NBA consideration, if not guaranteed all NBA merit. Oh, no, just missed it by one game. You're not an all NBA player anymore, Jimmy Butler. Like, it's just yeah. dumb. Well, and, and let me and also like, say that it's made worse by the fact that there are contract incentives tied to these distinctions, yeah. be it all NBA or awards, whatever, like basically the specter of injury is already hovering over these players and potentially impacting their career earnings. We know their careers are already super short. And so to kind of double down on that and compound it by saying, well, this thing that could impact the amount of money that you're able to make in your short career, like we're going to basically up the risk of injury by potentially forcing you to play more games than you should is like, I don't know, it just feels like making it that much worse, right? Like you're already at risk of losing career earnings if you suffer an injury. And now we're adding to that the fact that you could limit your career earnings by not being eligible for these awards that could allow you to meet incentives that allow you to make more money by saying you have to play more games when maybe you're not physically able to do so. Yep, it just seems like the onus is being put on the players who, one, aren't 
usually aren't the ones making the decisions when it comes to resting. I'm not talking about injuries. Um, so one, it's putting the onus on the players who aren't even necessarily responsible for this problem in the first place. If the league was that serious about stopping the resting portion of it, then they would go to the teams and find a way to put an end to it. Like I know they had a, they had put in that rule where uh, is it for national TV games you can't have more than one player resting that's not injured. Do you remember that rule they'd put in? I don't even know if they still enforce that, but well, the, but it's impossible to enforce because then the team I, can just be like, I well, know. he he's his, he's got knee soreness, you know. And that's what I'm gonna say. Unless the league is gonna get to a point where they're actually gonna say to teams, if a guy. I don't know. There's going to be some way to verify every guy in the injury report is like, which is not happening. They're not going to do that. They don't have the time to do that. Unless you get to that point, you're not going to be able to stop teams from resting players, except now you might have players going against the training staff's advice who are telling them, Hey, you know, your hammy's heating up in our tracking system. We think you should probably not play tonight. And the player's going to say, hey, man, I can't afford to miss another game because I'm at my limit if I still want to be able to make an All-NBA. Like, it's just ridiculous to me. It's it's not that I don't understand the value of the best players playing more often. I do. And if there's a way to limit, you know, unnecessary rest, and, and it's fine. I'm fine with that. But, again, most of this is coming from the training staffs and the teams yeah. themselves. And so to put the onus on the players when they're going by the advice of the supposed professionals when it comes to their well-being just seems like a recipe for disaster. Which is why it's like, who are we to say what's necessary rest yeah, and what exactly. isn't? We don't have access to right. the data in terms of like what training staffs are seeing and what's best for player health long term. Like we just don't know. So yeah. I it just, it, it's not really for us to say what is and what isn't necessary. And I think, you know, you're throwing into all that if you're already talking about potential friction between players and teams in terms of whether they can or should play or not, and players wanting to in order to meet those eligibility benchmarks, like you throw into it this other element of teams potentially having a vested interest in their players not meeting those thresholds because it might make them supermax eligible and the teams might not want to pay them a supermax, you know, like it might actually be in the team's best interest to hold them out for longer and whether they're actually doing that or not, it does. sow a certain element of distrust on the part of the players, if they do think they're good enough to play and the teams are saying they're not like, would you not as a player be like, man, you're just trying to keep my games played yep. down. So you don't have to pay me a supermax because I can't make all NBA. We're on the same page about what we disliked. I thought that might happen with the 65 game minimum. Um, so I'll throw one more thing out there and it's not even necessarily something I dislike. Cause again, we're on the same page with what we picked as our dislike, but I do think, um, it's interesting. And I do, I'm curious to see if these, uh, small rule changes will impact player movement and how wild NBA player movement can be. One of them being that, uh, extensions off of rookie scale deals can be five years now, regardless of whether it's a max or not. Whereas before their extensions were usually four years and they, to get a fifth year, that rookie extension would have to be a max. Now you can give anyone the fifth year, regardless of whether it's a max. So that's one. Two, the fact that uh, teams can now have more than two designated players, which are players that signed, I think the five-year maxes off their rookie extensions, correct? Yeah, specifically extensions yeah. though. Right. Yes. So even that, you know, uh, allowing more than two on one team, all these little things that could, oh, the second round uh, 
extension rule as well. Yeah, that that should keep players, you know, for example, like Austin Reeves with their team as long as the team comes correct. So there are all these little mechanisms that seem like maybe not huge deals that if they work as intended, will keep players with their teams maybe a year longer. Will keep so yeah. All well, you didn't mention things. so the the current extension rules which limit teams to offering a hundred and twenty percent of a player's the last year of a player's existing contract on the first year of a new extension. That's been up to one hundred and forty percent, which is feels a little bit negligible to me. Like obviously, okay, it's it's a meaningful increase, I guess, but I, I don't know if it's going to make that much of a difference. And I kind of would have preferred for them to just do away with that entirely. Like, why does it matter what they made on their previous contract? Like, why can't they just extend for whatever player and team deem suitable? I agree. You know, like, I, I just, I, I think this stipulation is there as a way for, like, teams to, pro- like, owners to protect themselves against you know, the spending whims of their front offices, I guess. And to be like, well, we can only offer this much. Yeah. And so, I mean, at the very least, you can go to a player on your team and show them that you really want to retain them by saying, this is the max we can offer you, even though, you know. It's still a lot less than you're worth, but it's the most we could give you. Exactly. So I think that's probably why the owners wanted to keep that stipulation in here. But I don't know that you know, upping it from 120% to 140% is going to make that big of a difference. And right. I, it's not something I dislike because ultimately it's still better than it was, but I would have preferred for them to have just scrapped that entirely. I'm with you in that. I don't know how much of a difference it'll make, but I think it'll make a more than 0% difference in that it'll affect a player here or there. It could affect Jalen Brown as soon as this summer, but between that, between the, um, you know, five-year rookie extensions, even for non-max ones, uh, the second round, except all those things, like I said, they do lead to players, even if it's for an extra year or whatever, it, it, it leads to players being retained, not all the time, but you know, that that's the intention of it. And so I do wonder if, you know, right now that seems all hunky dory. Like I, I'm sure teams are looking at us like, Hey, if we, you know, draft well, develop well, trade, well, whatever it is, we should have the powers to keep those teams together. And I get that, and I think that is good, and it's a benefit, and I'm sure there's the people saying, well, it's good for the small mark teams, whatever. Fine. I'm I'm with that. But I do wonder if the unintended consequence, perhaps, of taking away from the frenzy that is NBA player movement, which, let's be frank, does drive a lot of interest in this league and dominates a lot of the discourse. And I'm not saying it, it that's always right that it should do that, but things that get the fans interested in the game and the league are good, right? And so I do wonder if there's going to be an unintended negative consequence where it does take away a little bit from that frenzy because we've seen in other sports, like the NHL is a good example. Now they're they're at a different extreme. Like for example, there's, there's like third liners that have no trade clauses. It's ridiculous. But the point is, they the, all these mechanisms eventually led to trade deadlines that are way less interesting than they used to be. Although this year was a, a gong show, but in general over the last few years, trade deadlines have gotten less interesting and things like that. And I, I don't think the NBA necessarily wants to go down that path. Yeah. And I mean, maybe that's part of the impetus for keeping the extension rules somewhat rigid in that like more extensions mean fewer free agents and free agency ultimately attracts a lot of interest from 
fandom and and people really care about it. And I mean, ultimately, players want free agency to remain robust as well. But at the end of the day, like it would still be good for players to have more options in terms of extensions, right? For yep. that for that to be an avenue that makes more financial sense to them than it does now would still be a net benefit to players. So I don't know if they're, you know, sitting in that negotiating room wondering about, well, like if we kind of hinder free agency, like what's that going to mean for our fans? Like people love the July free agent feeding frenzy. And now we're going to have all these players signing extensions. So we can't do this. I don't know if that was really a consideration for them. Um, Definitely not for the players. No, the, the last thing, I mean, we, we can't not mention the second luxury tax apron that they're adding which is going to be uh, $17.5 million above the tax line. The existing apron is, I believe, $6 million or thereabouts above the tax line. And this second tax apron, once a team goes beyond it, they will no longer be able to use the taxpayer MLE. They won't be able to take back more money than they send out in trades. They won't be able to sign buyout guys. They won't be able to trade draft picks seven years out. Uh what else? They, they won't be able to send cash out uh, in any trade. So it's actually pretty restrictive. And I don't know that I love it. Uh, I know it really doesn't affect that many teams. I think there were uh, three teams this year, uh, like the Clippers, the Warriors. I can't. I, maybe I thought, it was, I thought it was just those two. Might just be the Clippers maybe, and Warriors. Yeah. But I don't know. How do you how do you feel about this? Like, I just... Anything that is sort of designed to curb spending rubs me a little bit the wrong way. Um, and I, I mean, ultimately, the, the BRI split is the BRI split, right? It's 50-50. So the players on balance are not necessarily going to be affected by it. They're still going to get their 50% share of the pie. But I don't know, man. It just feels like... I said this early in the season, too, when the, when you know there was the rumors of the hard cap, and I know that's this obviously isn't to that extreme but it's of the same mindset which is disincentivizing owners from spending as much as they can or want to spend on their teams in pursuit of winning you've already got a salary cap yes it's a soft cap but the cap does in effect level the playing field and this bs excuse about competitive balance looks so dumb when, as we've talked about all year, this is the most wide-open parity-filled season and period in decades, if not NBA history, with the system you have in place. And then you're going to use the fact that, well, how do you expect a small market team to play in the same league as the Warriors? When Joe Logan says, well, I don't know, they seem to be doing it. Yeah, that's, that's the other thing. It's like, look at the Warriors and Clippers this year. It's not like they're right. like running away from the rest of the field. Like, yeah. you're going to tell me that preventing the Warriors from signing Dante DiVincenzo or the Clippers from signing John Wall, who they bought out at the trade deadline and then signing Russell Westbrook as a buyout guy. Like somehow that's going to improve the product. I just don't buy it. And it feels to me like billionaire owners griping about other billionaire owners spending more money than they are. And I just kind of philosophically don't like it. Even Though I don't think that the, these rules are necessarily going to have like a massive damaging impact on the league as a whole. Yeah, whenever I go on rants about this, I always get like the replies I always get are, yeah, but you have to think about this like a business person. And so 
yes, they're all billionaires. And yeah, even the Bucks are owned by multi-billionaires and the Jazz and whatever. But if you're looking at it strictly as a business person, how much they have is irrelevant because it goes by the Jazz are, for example, just a business on their own that he is running. And if the TV rights and local marketing and all that means that he's dealing with less revenue from that specific business than the Warriors are, then he's got less to play with because it's he's not going to take his own money. It's going to be based on the revenue they're making. You have to think of it. And I get that. I do. But I would also argue anyone getting into pro sports as an owner these days should look around and realize the level they're playing on. And if you can't keep up with the big guys in this world, then sell your team for insane profits and go on your way and sell it to a person that is willing to spend and compete with those people regardless of the situation. Yeah. So I will say, so there's like one area, I guess, where it could benefit players, but it's just very specific to certain players in certain situations where like, if there is a team that's above that second apron, and so they know they're not going to have access to the taxpayer MLE or, you know, all these other things that teams below that apron have access to. They're going to be that much more incentivized to like bring back their own guys to, to use their bird rights to make sure that they, because they will have no way of replacing them. So, you know, if it was like the Clippers with, I don't know, Marcus Morris, I guess he's not even going to be a free agent, but I just, to use an example where it's like, ordinarily, if he was on an expiring deal, they would just let him walk. They might look at that and be like, yeah, we really need to resign Marcus Morris because as much as he's kind of on the decline and not helping us that much in the present, like he's the best that we can do because we can't sign anyone with the taxpayer MLE. Like there, there's one example where a player I suppose could benefit from it, but it just seems very narrow. And uh, you know, that, that alone isn't, making this a net benefit so i think uh, we're all cba talked out so should we take the break come back and talk about actual basketball yes sir let's do it what's up pound the rock listeners just a friendly reminder to rate review and subscribe to the show on itunes soundcloud stitcher spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts you can also check out the scores fantasy football podcast with justin boone and in case you haven't already download the score app available on iphone and android That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out The Score's YouTube page for an informative, yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. All right, Wolfon, let's reveal our all-defensive teams. I will give you the first crack at it. You can start anywhere you want. It could be a guard, it could be a forward, it could be your first-team center. Where are we starting? Uh, yeah, okay, let's start with my first team center because it was the easiest call for me out of any of these spots, Brooke Lopez. Um, I, I really think like defensive player of the year is a two-man race between him and Jaron, so no surprise, they're both on my first team, spoilers. Uh, Jaron's also there as a forward, but and I, I think Jaron is going to be eligible at center. He does play a bunch of center, but in the interest of getting both these guys on the first team where they belong... Uh, he definitely plays enough forward that I feel fine putting him as a forward and Brooke as the center. Uh, Lopez is just like easily the most impactful defender on a Bucks team that's been top three in defense for the entire season. Uh, he is at worst the second best rim protector in the league. But 
I think that he is also more scheme versatile than people give him credit for, and maybe more so even than he's been in the past. Like they have shown they're willing to play him in a bit of a higher drop, like have him hedge some of the time, have him switch some of the time. I think he's really held his own in those situations. Obviously where he thrives is in a drop and there's just nobody better at doing that. And it can look not that difficult sometimes because there isn't a ton of movement involved in it. Like a lot of the time it is just sort of him laying back and waiting for people at the rim, sometimes not even offering up contests because that buck scheme will just sort of willingly concede, pull up mid rangers or floaters and their perimeter defenders, as I'm sure we'll get into talking about, can do a lot of the work on that front in terms of making those shots more difficult. But he's just better than anybody at playing his man and the ball at the same time. And also just his timing on shot contests. It's truly unbelievable. Like he never, ever commits too early. And he very rarely commits too late. Like the, the times when it does does seem like he commits too late, it is kind of by design, I think, a lot of the time. And it's just like like that sense of timing, that knack for knowing the exact right moment when he's going to commit to the ball handler, when he's going to offer up a contest and when he's not is just so, so vital. And like, obviously like playing in that drop, being close to the basket as often as he is, he is like the most important element in terms of Milwaukee's defensive rebounding, which remains a huge part of their success, their ability to defend without fouling. Um, and we talked about this early in the season. It has continued all year and we haven't really returned to mentioning it, but the Bucks scheme, which has for a long time been based around suppressing opponent shots at the rim Previously, that came along with allowing a ton of three-point attempts. They sort of shifted their focus this year. They wanted to suppress three-point attempts as well. They've done that. Right now, according to the Cleaning the Glass, they are second in suppressing opponent rim attempts. And by the way, the Warriors are first, and there's like something wonky going on with their shot location scorekeeping and has been for years. I'll just quickly illustrate that by saying that at home, they are allowing 18.5% of opponent field goals to come at the rim, which is like insanely, historically, impossibly low. And on the road, that number jumps up to almost 32%. So I think you could probably say that the Bucks are like number one in suppressing opponent rim shots, and they're number four in suppressing opponent threes. They're able to do that in part because of Drew Holiday, yes, but in larger part because they can trust Brooke to handle those one-on-two situations, to be their last line of defense and not have to send too much help from the perimeter and in that way suppress both rim shots and threes at the same time. As I wrote and I guess wrote said in the latest episode of Unfiltered on, on Brooke Lopez, he allows guys like Drew. Obviously, those guys are great defenders in their own right. Don't get me wrong, but his excellence at the rim and like you said, his ability to play the ball and still protect the rim allows guys like Drew and Giannis to do what they do and allows the Bucks defense to do what it does. And I think, you know, much like on the offensive end, this season has kind of been like the crescendo or the culmination of, of these, like these years of transformation and development. I think on the defensive end, maybe not transformation so much, but it's been like the culmination of his defensive improvement over the years. And to the point where now he's at the point where this is the best defensive season of his career at 
he just turned 35 by the way and yeah. it's probably has him as the best defensive player in basketball this season at worst the second best one i mean he's averaging 2.5 blocks per game second only to jaron jackson defensive field goal percentage at the rim second only to walker kessler in blocks per foul committed which by the way shout out to kessler because that is crazy for a rookie to be that foul averse as an elite rim protector like that and this guy is going to be a perennial fixture on all defensive teams and in the defensive player of the year race for probably the majority of his career but anyway i digress in addition to the, the blocks and and lopez's ability to block and deter and alter shots without fouling and uh he's a little more malleable this year as you mentioned the thing i keep coming back to and i know i had texted it to you i included it in that episode of unfiltered but you know a lot of times i i think i'll rely on not rely on but if, if i think two guys are close in something and like say it is defensive performance or whatever and i'm going through all the metrics and the eye test and everything and i'm I'm really close on them sometimes i will just kind of go back to okay well how do their teams defend straight up when they're on the court Mm -hmm. and i know that can be teammate dependent for sure so with lopez i decided to check how do the bucks defend with lopez on the court and Giannis off and guess what with brooke lopez on the court and Giannis antetokounmpo former defensive player of the year Giannis antetokounmpo off the court but lopez on the Bucks have a better defensive rating than the Grizzlies do with Jaron Jackson on the court, than the Heat do with Bam Adebayo on the court, and then the Cavs do with Evan Mobley on the court. That is insane. And that is all part of why I would have him as my defensive player of the year. And I am with you in that he is the guy we had to start with as our first team all-defensive center. I'm, I mean, we can leave that there. I don't think there's yeah. much argument i just want to say like yeah you mentioned he's 35 he's coming off of this back surgery he's like the end if anyone remembers the movie rookie of the year maybe i'm dating myself with this reference but like the nba's version of henry rowan gardner where he suffers this brutal injury but then comes back with like a spring-loaded spine because he is moving around better than i've ever seen him move his second jump looks more explosive like he's getting off the ground quicker it's actually insane how good he's been at his age coming off of that surgery, which we've seen derail much younger players before. Like, remember when Dwight Howard had oh, to have God. back surgery when he was like, I, was I don't know, like 28 years old and they completely ruined him? Anyway, shouts to yeah. Brooke Lopez, man. What a, And by the way, you mentioned your, your unfiltered video. Everyone should go and watch that. It's awesome yeah. and just really hits on something that I, I have long felt, which is he has one of the coolest career arcs in the nba appreciate that mr wolfond should we talk jaron just because we we mentioned him and he's obviously yeah yeah that's where i was gonna go next i mean i'll see the floor to you but basically i was gonna say i mean i i just said he was our unanimous pound the rock defensive player of the year last year i think he would be our unanimous runner-up this year but he is at worst the second best defensive player in basketball this season and so I like the fact that we can slot him in at forward and have him make the first team with Brooke Lopez. Yeah, I'm. I, I don't think that I would necessarily have him runner up. I think if well, if I were a voter and I was voting right now, man, it'd be really hard. But I, I might still have him as the defensive player of the year. I think it's really just the 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 time missed due yep. to both injury and you know the the fouling that prevents him from playing as many minutes as, as somebody like Brooke Lopez that I guess prevent him from being kind of the runaway favorite. But even with 
those limitations, I don't know, man. It's it's hard to say that like he is not the best defensive player in basketball when he's on the court. I think that's actually pretty clear at this point. And I guess the question then is, is he the best defensive player by enough of a margin to offset uh, the the discrepancy in terms of time spent on the floor? Which is like 600 minutes, by the way. Brooke yeah, Lopez has and, played more than 600 more minutes than Jaron Jackson. Is right. Here. And it does matter that like part of that is within his control in terms of the fouling stuff that impacts his team negatively. Like you have to take that into consideration. We don't need to be talking about this right now. We're not talking about defensive player of the year. Point is he, to me, is obviously like first team defensive forward. 46.7% allowed at the rim when he's contesting. That is number one in the league by like a ridiculous margin. Lopez is second at 50.1%. Um, and the thing about Jaron that is so impressive is like he'll do it as like, you know, whether he's blocking his own guy or contesting his own guy or whether he's playing in drop coverage, but he will also do it from help position and like he is among the best I've ever seen in terms of the amount of ground he covers when coming over from the help side to contest or block shots at the rim. Like he, it's crazy how explosive he is and how he, like sometimes just genuinely comes from like out of frame to, uh, to make an unbelievable shot contest. Um, you mentioned Brooke being second in block rate. Jaron is at 9.7%. Uh, which means he blocks almost 10% of opponents' two-point attempts when he's on the court. That is tied for 10th all-time. Six of the seasons ahead of him in that category uh, belong to Minute Bowl. <laughs> and one of them remarkably belongs to Mitchell Robinson, who did it in 2018-19. So shouts to Mitchell Robinson. But uh, Jaron, able to do that as a rim protector and then also be like an incredible switch defender, Really, really good defending in isolation. I had a really difficult time with all NBA forwards in general. He was the one that I just had here in pen from the beginning. Stone cold lock, first team forward. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, I guess I'll give you the second forward rather than going to the guards. Yeah, let's do it. Evan Mobley. Wow. It was, it was for me, a toss-up between Mobley and Giannis. And... For me, it's like splitting hairs because I think both are all defensive team guys and it was just who gets that second first team forward spot. And I know Giannis reputation-wise would get it. And obviously, Giannis, like I, if someone asked me right now who is the better defensive player, who would you take in one game, even if it's just talking defense, I would still go Giannis. But if someone asked me who has been the slightly better defensive forward in the 2022-2023 season... I would say Mobley, and I would also say that I did give him a bit of a bump and a benefit of the doubt for the fact that I think it sounds crazy because I get it. The, the responsibility Giannis has defensively is insane, but I actually think Mobley has more on his shoulders defensively with this cast team, and I get that he's playing beside Jared, Jared Allen, who's a fantastic defensive center in his own right, but Giannis has the guy that we both just said is top two at worst in defensive player of the year, if not the winner and the best defensive center in basketball and has Drew Holiday, the best, one of the best defensive guards in basketball. And that, that doesn't take away from how good Giannis is, but I just think if we're talking 2022, 2023, I think Mobley's been slightly better. And I think his contributions have been more necessary and important 
for a Cavs team that has defended as well as Milwaukee and Memphis pretty much wire to wire, despite having Donovan Mitchell and Darius Garland in the backcourt, who we've acknowledged have, have been much improved defenders, but you know are not Drew Holiday and Dylan Brooks, for example. So I didn't have Mobley on my first team. I guess I can spoil this and say that I had him on my second team, and I'm pretty okay with him being on the first team. I think it's tough for me because the Cavs having the best defensive rating and him being the best defender on the Cavs makes it feel like a clear-cut case, but it's really about him and Allen in combination with each other and how they both kind of amplify each other, give each other more liberty to do different things out on the perimeter because they kind of have each other's backs and, you know, both incredible rim protectors, Mobley, the more versatile defender, but Allen, I don't know if he gets enough credit for how versatile he can be as well. Like he's a pretty damn good switch defender in his own right. Um, But Mobley is a guy you can do more with in terms of the types of individual defensive assignments you give him. And I think he's also probably a little bit better in ball screen coverage. So uh, yeah, I, ha- I have no real issue with this. I think like the one knock or the one thing you could theoretically hold against him is that his on-offs aren't very impressive. Like they're probably the worst of any of the players ultimately that I had on any of these all defensive teams because the Cavs are basically the exact same defensively, whether he's on or off. But that is essentially skewed by just ridiculous opponent shooting when he's on the floor that I don't think actually has that much to do with him. Like opponents shoot 39% from three and 45% from the corners when he's on the floor. And I just think that's more of a fluke than anything because in terms of like his numbers defending in isolation, his rim protection, um, he's 96th percentile as a rim deterrent, according to cleaning the glass. Like he's, he's exceptional and uh, I'm fine with him being on first team, even though I didn't have him here. But Cash, would you believe that I also don't have Giannis? as a first-team all-defensive forward, and that right, I instead have... Can you guess? I'm going to say either Jaden McDaniels or OG Ananobi. Jaden is my guy. Uh, okay. Yeah. He... Again, the, the forward group was agonizingly difficult, and basically after I put that Jaren spot in pen, there were four other guys that I cycled in and out of those last three spots and all of them at various points in time I had on the first team and I settled eventually on Jaden. I just, it's maybe more of a, of a heart thing than a head thing and kind of going, you know, and, and it's not like the, the stats aren't there for him, but just going on like my eye test and what I've seen having watched him he guards anybody, anybody, one through four, right? It's not some fake token flexibility where it's like, oh, he can passably guard anyone one through four. It's like, I believe he is like a top 10 defender in basketball at any of those four positions. I genuinely believe that. And if you if you look at like kind of what he's able to do at the point of attack, and what he's able to do at the rim, I just thought it was ultimately kind of undeniable. Like, uh, opponents shoot 6.5 percentage points worse at the rim with him on court. 
And then again, that's with him spending, I'd say more than half the time defending on the perimeter. So he's able to do that, I think, because he's an incredible backline helper, but also because he makes it way harder for his own man to score at the basket. Like whether he's straight up blocking or contesting his own guy on a drive or just funneling them directly into help, like he's able to do that in both ways, like as the backline helper and just as the primary on the ball. And um, if you look at like his rim protecting numbers, 52.8% allowed at the rim, which is seventh in the league among players who are contesting at least three rim shots a game. And all the players ahead of him, except for Draymond are centers and Draymond still spends, you know, a lot of his time playing center. So um, I just thought it, like his ability to be that kind of rim deterrent and also be as good as he is at the point of attack, where for a guy his size, like he really gets around screens incredibly well, provides that rear view pressure. Um, I, I don't know that any other forward in the game, including Giannis, who is a better rim protector without a doubt, but in my mind, not nearly the the screen navigator, the perimeter defender, the switch defender that Jaden is. So uh, I wound up giving him the nod. I've got no issues with that. And he did make my all defensive second team. Um, so, I mean, I guess we can just save some time here because I can just say, can I safely assume then that you had Giannis on your second team with Mobley? You cannot. Oh, shit. All right. Then we'll leave that. We'll leave that for you to come back to later. Okay. I'll give you my f- all defensive first team guard. Okay. OG Ananobi. And he, I don't think he's eligible at guard. So here's the thing he should be because he's actually listed when they start their best lineup as their starting shooting guard. Second of all, cleaning the glass. I know basketball references can be a bit funky, but cleaning the glass even has him as 52% of time on floor spent at guard. Versus 48% at forward. Basketball reference has it as 51-49 slanted for guard. And like I said, you know, the way a team writes it out obviously doesn't necessarily matter. But OG is the nominal guard in their current lineup. And the way I saw it is, because of all that, he should be eligible at guard. And I think for pound the rock purposes, we can call him a guard and say it's interchangeable between guard and forward. And the reason I like that is because it also, to me, then allows more of the deserving guys to all get in on our teams. Whereas if he was at forward, I think a clear-cut, deserving, all-defensive team member would get left off. I think at guard, it makes more sense and ends up fair for everyone. So OG is going to be on my first-team all-defense this year. And if I can slot him in at guard to make it better for everyone else, that's where I'll do it. Leads the league in steals is as versatile... like. There are a lot of guys in the NBA that you can say guard. I mean, there aren't a lot that you can say guard one through five, but there are multiple that you say, oh yeah, like they can guard one through five and they're great versatile defenders, but it usually still has limits depending on the matchups we're talking about at the extreme end, whether at the one or at the five. That is not the case for OG Anunobi. He might be the only guy on the planet that is truly, truly able to defend one through five, no matter who it is, whether we're talking waterbug type guards, whether we're talking James Harden type guards, whether we're talking the biggest, most dominant superstar forwards in the league today, or whether we're literally talking Nikola Jokic and even Joel Embiid. Like, no one does what OG Anunobi does or can do what OG Anunobi does when it comes to defensive versatility. He's leading the league in steals. The versatility to me makes it even easier to just slot him in at guard 
So that's where I'm with that. I don't really think I need to convince you that he's an all-defensive team member. It just sounds like you had him at forward. Yeah, I had him on my second team at forward. And again, if he is ultimately eligible at guard, then 100% he should be on the first team. I just didn't think he was going to be, and that's why I put him where I put him. But really, everything I said about McDaniels in terms of his ability to you know, not just capably defend all these different positions, but to do so at an elite level applies to OG. But then you add on to that the fact that he can guard fives and that his ability to do that allows the Raptors all this flexibility. Now that they have a legitimate center in Jakob Pertl, they they have the option to use him in different ways and let him be a rover and stay out of ball screen action and lurk close to the rim. Like OG makes that possible. Um, and and he has long been one of the best on-ball defenders in the league. I think this season especially, he's become one of the best off-ball defenders in the league, leading the NBA in steals. Um, and, and so I guess you could wonder, if I say all that, why is he on my second team while Jaden's on my first team? And I guess my answer would just be that I think Jaden's been better as a point-of-attack defender this year and better as a rim protector. Like... OG comes with the added strength, which allows him to guard centers and maybe be slightly better in terms of guarding opposing wings. But I think what Jaden has done, you know, in terms of being able to navigate screens and and defend point guards and things like that, uh, coupled with his ability to protect the rim in a way that I don't think OG quite can, felt a little bit more important to me, but I was really splitting hairs there. So even if you didn't want to have OG at guard, but like wanted to have him as your first team forward, I'd be totally fine with that too. Like it was super, super narrow margins all the way around. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, his versatility is pretty much unparalleled and, you know, somewhat, somewhat stealthily, the Raptors have crept up to the fringes of top 10 in team defensive rating where they'd been languishing, you know, near the bottom 10 for much of this season. And they're number two, since Pirtle made his debut. Yes, which maybe makes you think about, you know, the the importance of, of Pirtle relative to Ananobi and just the importance of big men in general in terms of what that means for team defense yes. relative to, to perimeter defenders, even ones as versatile as OG, because and I'm not saying that Pirtle is a better or more important defender than OG, but I, I think it's important to recognize when we do talk about awards and why big men tend to win those awards. It's just easier as a big man to have a, a more of a, of an impact on your team's defense as a whole. And I, you know, part of the reason I guess that I, I, I said earlier on that, like I'm fine with keeping some measure of positional distinction on these all NBA teams is because I don't know. I think it would kind of be boring if the all NBA teams were just made up of a bunch of big guys just because ultimately they still need those perimeter defenders to do what they do in order for them to to do what they do at the highest level, right? Like they need guys who can, you know, get around screens and provide that rear view pressure. Like Brooke Lopez would not be a better defender with Brooke Lopez defending on the perimeter, right? right. Like he needs Drew no, no, Holiday I, in front of him. I'm with you. I think keeping positional designations for the all defensive teams actually makes sense. And I think positionless for all NBA makes sense. Yes. Um, okay, so then that leaves us with one first team guard spot. And, yeah. So uh, just so just to recap. Yeah. So between Jaron Jackson, because you did have Evan Mobley on your second team. Yep. So between Jaron Jackson, Evan Mobley, Jaden McDaniel's, and OG Ananobi for you, those those are your four all defensive forwards. Correct. And then I had OG at guard, 
And I'll just say, I mean, I don't think we need to get in too depth when it comes to Giannis. I had Giannis as my second team forward. So between OG, who we both had, but I had him at guard, and then Jackson, um, McDaniels, Mobley, and Giannis, who you didn't have, but I had. So, like, we end up with those five forwards between our two all-defensive teams, but with me having OG at guard and, and you having OG at forward and Giannis off. Yeah, and, and I I'll just say now to clear it up, Draymond was the other forward that I wanted to get into that mix. And I basically resolved that by making him my second team center. Nice. Okay. So, wow. Okay. So your two centers were Brooke Lopez and Draymond Green. Yeah. Um, All right. And I think that was the the best way that I could sort it out. According to Cleaning the Glass, he's played 53% of his minutes this season at center. So, and I think I saw somewhere, I think maybe it was Nikias Duncan who posted that he'd heard that Draymond was going to be eligible at center. So, I, I felt fine with with putting him there, and he, to me, made more sense in that spot than, even though the you know again, fierce competition for that last spot as well, uh, he kind of made more sense to me there than any of the other centers in competition for that spot. But before we move on to to second team, can we say that that last first team guard spot should go to Alex Caruso? Yes, and I was gonna say it would take a really special type of defensive guard for me to say that they are a surefire first team guy, even at only 1500 minutes played. Mm -hmm. But Alex Caruso is a surefire first team, all defensive guy. He is the best defensive guard in basketball today. And while he, you know, yeah, he's played less minutes than some of the other guys we're talking about. He's played enough and made enough of a defensive difference for a Bulls team that has a top five defensive rating, despite having problematic defenders, uh, like up and down the roster, maybe not so much now, but still, um, he has to get one of those first team spots. If not being the first guard you mentioned, like I said, I ended up calling him my second guard on the first team, but only because I wanted to find that spot for OG who had, you know, according to cleaning the glass, played 52% of his minutes at guard, but Caruso's a first team, all defensive guard. No question about it. Yeah. And I mean, we talked on a recent episode about all the ways and all the reasons that that Bulls defense has overachieved, but Caruso is still by far the biggest reason. And to do that as a guard, like we literally just talked about how much easier it is as a big man to have that, that kind of team wide impact on overall defense, like to do what he's done as a guard is so exceptional. And he does that by like, this was especially true when Lonzo was healthy. Um, but you know, with Lonzo not there, it's meant that much more responsibility on Caruso's shoulders in terms of like the way their defense is built is as opposed to having, you know, like a safety net on the back line to protect weaker perimeter defenders, which is how most defenses operate. They have Caruso on the perimeter to kind of protect their shaky interior defense. And he's able to do it because I don't think there's anybody who's better at containing dribble penetration. I don't think there's anyone with better hands in terms of like how quick his hands are, how accurate they are, how sticky they are. And he is sneaky strong, man. Like he can really guard up the positional spectrum too. And um, I, I don't know, man, I like 2.3 steals and one block per 36 minutes. Like he is a defensive playmaker, but it's not, you know, he's not gambling himself out of position to make those plays. He just, I think most of his steals are just on ball steals, right? They're not like him jumping passes or like playing out of scheme and gambling wildly to get them. He's just picking his own guy most of the time because of how good those hands are and because he's so hard to dribble around. And um, if you look at like sort of the, the Bulls defensive rating with him on the floor, 
and the Cavs are number one in the league at 110. So that number is better than any defender on the Bucks, and it's basically the exact same as Jaron Jackson's on-court defensive rating. And when you look at who those other defenders are playing next to, you know, compared to who Caruso is usually on the floor with, I just think that that number is unbelievably impressive. So, absolutely, first team, first team, uh, all defensive guard for sure. Um, I, I'll just say now uh, because yeah, I guess who is your other guard on, on our collective list? Sir. He's now been yeah. bumped to second team, but my other first team defensive guard was Derek White. Nice. Okay. Um, I had White just missing the cut. Yeah, it's fine. I had, I had White as my fifth guard essentially, so just missing the cut. For okay. Yeah, I mean, it really it came down to him versus Drew Holiday for my second guard spot here, and it was super super tight. Um, I I think what it came down to for me, like I do think Drew is a better on ball defender, and probably after Caruso, like he uh, in my mind would be the best sort of on ball guard defender in the league, but. I, I just don't love Holiday as much as an off-ball defender. I think there are like a bunch of times where actually he's kind of either underhelping or overhelping, making some sort of curious decisions uh, as a help guy. And basically those mistakes don't matter that much because he has both Brooke Lopez and Giannis behind him. And that's a luxury Derek White obviously doesn't have, even though, you know, a lot of the time he's on court, he'll have maybe, you know, Al Horford and Rob Williams behind him. Uh, a lot of this, a lot of the time this season, he hasn't. And I, I, just, I think he's been the best defender on the Celtics, who, by the way, after a tough start, are now 0.1 points per 100 possessions behind the Bucks for third and 0.2 points per 100 possessions behind uh, Memphis for second in defensive efficiency. And uh, they white basically apart from Rob Williams, who's only played 33 games among the Celtics starters has the best individual defensive rating. I I've mentioned before how I think he's just full stop the best shot blocking guard in the league. Also one of the best screen navigators. Uh, I I've absolutely loved what he's done on the defensive end. And I think it, when, when comparing him with holiday, I just think he's better as a team defender, like sharper with his rotations makes fewer mistakes off of the ball. And that, to me, made up for the fact that I think Holiday is still ultimately the better on-ball defender. Yeah, so if I hadn't slotted OG at guard, Derek White would have made my team, but he would have been second team. I had Holiday um, ahead of him, but still on my second team because I had OG and Caruso. Um, with Holiday, I get what you're saying about the off-ball stuff, and I'll even admit that like, in terms of the raw numbers, even some of the advanced metrics, they actually don't have them near like the top, top tier as a defensive guard anymore, but this is the one where I just went like, I'm sorry. My eye test still says he's one of the four best defensive guards in basketball. And I had to slot him in there on the second team. So your first team guards are Caruso and white minor OG and Caruso. I mean, I've already given up holiday. You've already given up white. So I have a feeling we're going to agree on this last one for guard. I think uh, Dylan Brooks. Yes, it's Dylan Brooks. Yeah. Okay. Um, I, I think, he, look, he's not perfect. He fouls too much. Like, he is over-aggressive. Not even in terms of the fouls, but, like, he is so committed to ball denial sometimes that he will give up a lot of back cuts because he's just, like, too aggressive playing on the top side and, like, so focused on not letting a guy come up and get the ball for, like, a, a pin down or a dribble handoff that they'll just back cut him. And, and I know that's, like, 
the responsibility of the entire team to prevent that from happening. But I think there are definitely times when he could stand to scale back the aggressiveness. But he is so good getting around screens, staying attached, and so versatile in terms of the types of players that he can frustrate. Like you can throw him at Steph and you could throw him at Zion and throw him at Giannis and throw him at Carl Towns. Like any one of those guys, he's going to make their lives exceedingly difficult just by chasing them around, refusing to get screened. And I got to say, like he just seems really unpleasant to play against. Like it seems like it would be absolutely no fun to have him guarding you, getting up in your airspace, probably talking trash and just generally being a super pest. And I, I don't, I don't know. It's it's not a situation where it's, where it's sort of like, you know, fake hustle or just like it's performative. Like it is in a sense performative and he does do a lot of this stuff deliberately to just try and get under people's skins. But that's not everything. Like in terms of his technique, he is actually a wonderful, wonderful perimeter defender as well. I mean, I know obviously we're talking about defense, but I do think sometimes when it comes to whether it's people voting for him or the way people think of it, I think like the shot selection, the way he carries himself probably does um, hurt him in public perception. But it, like if we're talking defense, this guy can D up with anyone. And you have to consider that like we talk about that trio of teams that have been yo-yoing for the number one spot on defense all season with Memphis, Milwaukee, and Cleveland. Like, the Grizzlies have stayed in that mix despite Jaron Jackson missing a ton of time. Well, not a ton, missing a fair amount of time. And their backcourt, their starting backcourt being John Morant and Desmond Bain. So Dylan Brooks needs to get a lot of the credit for that. In addition to what the eye test says, he will, I think will be rewarded this year for his defensive contributions for one of the best teams in basketball that desperately needs those contributions, especially this season with Jaron out and, and obviously the backcourt they've got. Yeah. You know, I've got Mobley and OG as my second team forwards. I, I can quickly just make the case because I didn't have Giannis on either of my all defensive teams. And that feels insane. And I definitely thought going into this exercise that he was going to be, you know, probably on my first team. And then I wound up not even having him on my second team. And I just kind of feel like he hasn't been quite at that level that he's been at in past years. And maybe that has to do with him carrying more of the load offensively. Like that's perfectly understandable with Middleton missing, you know, more than half the season and coming back on a minute restriction and coming off the bench most of the time. Like it's just been more on Giannis's shoulders offensively. And for that reason, I just don't think he's been quite as good defensively. Obviously, as a helper, he is still, you know, maybe the best in the league or maybe second after Draymond. But as an on-ball guy, I don't know. It's I've been kind of underwhelmed by him more often than not. Like, I don't think he's been an especially good switch defender this year. And just, like, not as imposing in general defending in isolation as maybe he's been in the past. And I don't know, I thought that was kind of reason enough for me to bump him in what was, again, a ridiculously competitive crop of forwards. So, I, and also, like, th this is maybe stupid. Like, this shouldn't be a reason to bump him. Like, I would take umbrage with, like, voters making this case in the past. But I didn't feel like we needed to have three bucks on the all-defensive teams. Holiday's here. Brooke is here. 
And um, yeah, I thought I thought it really just came down to me feeling like by the thinnest of margins that the other forwards I picked were a tiny bit better than him this year. It, it does seem crazy on its face to not have him, but I, there are a lot of good defenders, man. And there's only two of these teams. It's not like the All-NBA where there's three of them. Like It's hard. To come up with four guards and four forwards and two centers. It really is. Okay, so your All-NBA teams then were at guard, Caruso, White, Holiday, Brooks. Yep. At forward, you had Jackson, McDaniels, OG. And Mobley. And Mobley. Yeah. And at center, you had Lopez and Draymond. Uh, yeah, and so the the moving to Dr- moving Draymond to center actually just like made this exercise a lot easier for me because I couldn't yeah. imagine like my my consternation at already having to basically leave Giannis Antetokounmpo off of an all defensive team, and I thought I might have to do the same with Draymond, who by the way like, and you mentioned this before, if I was like I can only have I can choose one defender to have on the floor for a like win the championship type possession. Those are like the two guys. Yeah. You know, that would be in competition for the player that I would choose in that situation. So, so you, yeah. And you left one of them off, but that, that's what I'm saying. It's, it's tough, man, to pick these teams. And I'll be honest with you. As soon as you said you had Trayman at center, what I wanted to say is I wish, I wish you had considered OG at guard. And 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 seeing the cleaning the glass breakdown there, and I wish I had done the same for Draymond because even though I know in my head, you know, he excels as a small ball center and Warriors death lineups over the years. For whatever reason, this year I was like, I just don't think this year it makes as much sense to have him at center. I feel like he hasn't spent as much time there. And why did I not confirm the cleaning the glass numbers the way I did with OG to make my job easier? Don't know. But so I ended up leaving Draymond off because I had him as my fifth forward. I had him as like the 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 best snob or the honorable mention at forward. And so the same way you felt about Giannis and leaving him off, that's how I felt about Draymond. And yeah, I just wish I would have done the same for him at center that I did for OG at guard. Because it would have made my job a lot easier in not having to pick and split hairs between Joel Embiid, Bam Adebayo, Rudy Gobert, and... Nick Claxton? Nick Claxton, yeah. Um, so you your forwards, your second team forwards were Giannis and Jaden, is that right? That's correct, yeah. Yeah, um, and your second team center were... was who? Joel Embiid. Uh, yeah. So I, yeah, I had like a basically the exact same tier of centers that you did that I before I decided to put Draymond here was deciding between in Bam, Embiid, Claxton, and honestly, if AD had played like ten yeah, more games, he might have been who I went with at second team center Agreed. because he has been a full time center this year and Mm -hmm. he's been unbelievable defensively when he's been healthy um but just to the draymond point i I know that the warriors defense has been disappointing on the whole but a couple important caveats first of all they're they're tied for 18th in defense right now but it's so bunched up between 9th and 18th that in spite of that seeming like they're you know a below average defense they're like 0.7 points per 100 possessions away from being ninth. So it's very negligible that the distinction there and like they're also 10 points per hundred better defensively with Draymond on the floor. So I really don't put any of that disappointment on his shoulders and like as a rim deterrent, 
he's still up there with the best and biggest centers in the game. So like putting him at center was kind of a no brainer for me in that respect. And then like just all the issues that we've seen with the Warriors defense this year, where like fouling has been a huge issue for them, but like with Draymond on the floor, they actually suppress opponent free throws at the equivalent of a top 10 rate. Like rebounding has been a big issue for them, but like defensively uh, defensive rebounding that is, but with Draymond on the floor, like they're actually an above average defensive rebounding team. And I, I don't know. Again, it's one of those things where you just have to watch him and pay attention to what he does on every defensive possession. And you can't not say that he's uh, an all defensive teamer this year, even in, you know, what's maybe a slightly diminished state compared to where he's been at, at his very peak. He, he reads the game better than anybody. He makes the most proactive and disruptive help rotations in the game. Um, and then like you look at his rim protection numbers and he protects the rim like a center. So uh, it, it made perfect sense to me, but uh, I, you know, I think again, Claxton has been amazing and bead, even though he doesn't always go full throttle defensively during the regular season, when he does, it's honestly frightening. And the fact that he's yeah. been able to keep that Sixers defense top 10 this entire yes. year with some of the personnel around him is really impressive. Yep, and that factored in for me and the fact that, so between him and Gobert and Bam and Claxton, I really did think it was close. And if I would have said, okay, just on instinct or eye test, if you had to pick one, I'd be like, I would give the edge to Embiid by a hair. But because it was so close, I was willing to be wrong in terms of like, okay, let me look more into numbers and see if maybe one of the other three really stands out. So I looked at between raw numbers and advanced numbers, advanced numbers, I looked at all of them, defensive RPM, Raptor defensive rating, defensive box plus minus. I looked at uh, defensive plays per foul, which you know is a stat I like, a bunch of things. And I think there was like seven or eight different things I looked at. And out of those four guys, Embiid, finished the number one out of those four most often in those categories. So I was like, okay, now the eye test has me leaning in bead. These numbers would still have me leaning in bead. And then also, even when it comes to defensive field goal percentage of the four, I think Embiid was second. I think Gobert might've still been first, but still, um, I was still leaning in bead. And then the last thing I checked was defensive rating when all these players are on the court and it still went Embiid and then Gobert and then Claxton and actually Bam a lot further behind. So there was enough in the numbers that con confirmed my instinctive bias or my eye test bias that already had him beat. And so I thought, okay, there's enough here for me to give him this second team all defensive spot. But again, I will also say that had I had Draymond at center, I would have gone Draymond center and Embiid as my top snub, but I didn't do that. So give Embiid his flowers. Second um, team, all defensive center for me. I just want to make one more quick point on Giannis and why I ultimately felt somewhat okay about leaving him off as wrong as it sort of felt on its face. I think so like the Bucks defense as good as it's been all year is dead last in forcing turnovers and Giannis for the guy who basically has the responsibility of being like the team's rover, right? And just sort of causing havoc and making plays he's like well under a block and a steal per game. And I know those numbers don't really tell you a whole lot about overall defensive quality. And to be clear, Giannis remains like a, a world altering defender. And like I said before, if I could pick only one player to be on the floor for a defensive possession, you know, I'd be choosing between him and Draymond, but this year to be that guy, to have that responsibility 
to not be given the toughest on-ball assignments, but just to be like the guy who's supposed to be disruptive and cause chaos, to not be making those types of defensive plays at the level we've become accustomed to him to seeing from him is like, I don't know. It, it was that, that was a little disappointing to me, and so no, that's fair. When it came to splitting those hairs and doing tiebreakers and things like that to determine it, that was maybe like the last straw where I was like, yeah. He's a defensive playmaker who hasn't made as many defensive plays maybe as you would like to see from him this season. Um, so, yeah, uh, to quickly recap, my first team, Alex Caruso, Derek White, Jaden McDaniels, Jaron Jackson, Brooke Lopez. My second team, Drew Holiday, Dylan Brooks, Evan Mobley, OG Ananobi, and Draymond Green. Um, and so ultimately, I think we just disagreed on two guys. Like you had you had Giannis and you had Embiid instead yep. of Derek White and Draymond and Draymond, right? Yeah, I think it was pretty much cons- a lot of consensus there. And like I said, even it's just so tough with only two teams, man. Like, say what you will, you know, haters about there not being defense in the modern NBA. No, it's actually more complex defense than at any stage in professional basketball history, the players are just really good yeah. on both ends. And trying to come up with only 10 to be honored for their defense, with only four guards, four forwards, and two centers, is an almost impossible task. So NBA defense is insane right now. It's yeah. it's actually insane. And like it's, it does sound weird to say that about a, a season in which offensive ratings are like way higher than they've ever been. But that speaks to the offensive skill level across the league, the way the rules advantage offensive players more than they do defensive players. Um, It says nothing about the quality of the individual defenders or the defensive schemes in the league. And like, we can really quickly just run through some like honorable mentions or tough cuts to illustrate just like how difficult this was. But like guys that, that didn't make it for me that I strongly considered Bam and Bede, Claxton, AD, uh, Giannis, obviously, Marcus Smart, last year's Defensive yeah. Player of the Year winner, didn't make either of our two all-defensive teams Yo, this year. DeLon Wright has been fantastic defensively at the point of attack. Yeah, DeLon Wright. Herb Jones for yep. New Orleans, who, by the way, they're tied with the Bulls right now for fifth in defensive efficiency. Look at the defensive personnel on that team and tell me that Herb Jones shouldn't be on an all-defensive team. And yet... Dude, Jimmy Butler? Jimmy Butler. Dude, Mikhail Bridges? Yep, Paul George? Bridges. Uh, Aaron Gordon has honestly been amazing defensively for the Nuggets this year. Um, Gobert, I know he hasn't been up to his usual standard, but still, if you look statistically, the number one rim deterrent in all of basketball still. Um, man, Jared Allen, Miles Turner, Jared Vanderbilt, Josh Okoji, Lou Dort in there. DeAnthony Melton, Kevin Durant has been incredible defensively this year. Dude, Mitchell Robinson for... The Knicks, like, I mean, I know their defense has slipped, but again, I, he he's not coming close to making any of these teams. But the fact that even a guy like that, it's like, oh, he, he's not even sniffing contention. And he, they could, there could be five all defensive teams, and that guy still wouldn't sniff contention. Shows you how ridiculous, yeah, it is. Yo, Kessler himself, I know he's a rookie, but seriously, his rim protection and that uncanny ability to be a first year NBA player and make the defensive plays he's making without fouling, unbelievable. Um, you know, Javon Carter in Milwaukee, like yeah. we talk about their perimeter defense, 
defense and how good Holiday has been, Javon Carter has been, I want to say, almost every bit as good in terms of of navigating screens and, and staying attached to ball handlers. Uh, who else? Isaac Okoro, Pat Beverly, Dennis Smith Jr. has actually been shockingly good defensively for the Hornets this year. Even you know, Hornets team that's I think second best in defense since the All Star break. That's right. Um, uh, who else? Like uh, Quentin Grimes, Kyle Anderson, uh, Davion Mitchell. Like, damn, it's it's tough, it's man. Nuts, man. It's really tough to to whittle that list down to only ten guys. And I think we've said this before. Like, I would be happy for them to expand it to to three all defensive teams, and. I, I, Three yeah, all defensive I, teams and four all NBA teams. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and I don't want it to seem like, you know, that, that, well, maybe I do want it to seem like this. Yeah. Like not, not a participation ribbon, but like, I don't know, recognize more players. Why not? Like, Again, especially when in historical context, fewer players by percentage are getting recognized today than they have ever before. Yeah. So anyway, I, it, this was, this was a tough exercise. And I think, Ultimately, the fact that we were so close in terms of the the players we had, and like even like the the two that we quote unquote disagreed on, I think we're both like in your case, like the ones that I had were your, like your first two cuts, yeah. and sort of the same for me with the two guys that you had on that I didn't. So the fact that we ultimately in that group of incredibly talented defenders, we still came to something resembling a consensus speaks to how exceptional that top group of defenders has been yeah. this season. Yeah, that top 10 to 15. So I guess that's it. Yes, sir. All right, I think we've shouted out enough of the league's best defenders. So let's get to a fan shout out to close this show. No make or miss today. Our next episode will include a make or miss. So uh, last Monday, was it? I don't remember when it was. Last Tuesday, we went to friends of the show, uh, Will Lou and Alex Wong's event which was uh in support of raptors general manager bobby webster's scholarship fund some great prizes raffled off and all that um so a couple fan shout outs first met your friend dan finally uh he, who's a big fan of the show so we've got it i know you don't want to give him a shout out because it's a friend shout out yeah. i think you might have given him a shout out before but i did want to shout out the fact that i met him uh, uh last no week. i actually but, uh, i never have shouted him out before oh. but i do i do want to say he listens to every episode always okay. text me to to give me feedback usually positive and um i uh, i really appreciate him in all aspects of life but uh also for for how dedicated he is as a listener to this show and then in addition you had already left wolf on uh i think by this point yeah you had left already but uh guy by the name of anyone on Instagram and NBA circles might already follow him. He goes by Sexy Beast on Instagram, all one word, and the first E is actually an eight. He's a jersey curator. He was at the event, and uh, after the event was done, when everyone was just kind of mingling, uh, met him face to face finally after just following each other on Instagram. And he said he's a big fan of Pound the Rock. So I wanted to get Sexy Beast a shout out. And also, uh, in case you're wondering, oh, who was it? Because you had already left. It was the guy in front of us with the Marcus Banks Raptors jerseys when we got in. And I was like, who the hell is wearing a Marcus Banks Raptors jersey? Not only a Marcus Banks Raptors jersey, a St. Patrick's Day green Raptors jersey with Marcus Banks on it. Well, it was, of course, Sexy Beast because he is a jersey curator that has an insane collection. I don't think 
anyone in the world other than Mar- maybe Marcus Banks himself, and honestly, probably not even him, has a Marcus Banks Raptors St. Patrick's Day jersey. So shout out Sexy Beast for having an insane collection of NBA jerseys and also for being a fan of the show. We hope he's tuned in for the full 90 minutes today so he can get to this shout out. For those of our loyal listeners who don't get to see us at random events, hit us up on social media, uh, on Twitter at Joey underscore double Y-O-U, at Joseph Cacharo, email joseph.cacharo at thescore.com, joe.wolfond at thescore.com. Find me on Instagram at joe underscore 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 cash. Let us know how long you've been listening, where you listen from, what you like, maybe what you don't like about the show. Hit us with a joke, whatever. And I'll make sure that we get you a shout out on a future episode. But until one of those future episodes, for Joe Wolfond, I'm Joseph Charles. Pound the Rock.